It's about you, your health, your family, and your community. This is Sunday Morning Magazine with your host, Rodney Lear. And good morning. Hope you're having a blessed weekend. Welcome to another edition of Sunday Morning Magazine. Remember, more information about the show can be found on our Facebook page. Visit us at Sunday Morning Magazine with Rodney Lear. Head there now, like us there now, and join the conversation there this morning. You can also listen to the show anytime you like. Just go to your favorite podcast app and subscribe to Sunday Morning Magazine with Rodney Lear on your favorite app there. We begin this morning with Amanda Tip Kemper. She is Autism Services Director with the Children's Home of Cincinnati. We're also joined in the studio by Stephen Wilson. Stephen is also with the Children's Home of Cincinnati. They're here this morning to talk about autism. It's our pleasure to welcome Amanda and Stephen to Sunday Morning Magazine. Good morning. How are you two? Doing great. Great. Thanks for letting us be here. Uh, no problem. My pleasure. So let's start at the beginning. Um, Let's talk about how many children are diagnosed um, with autism. The most recent statistics have um, us averaging about one in 59 individuals on the autism spectrum. So when I um, started in this field in 2004, I think the rate was one in 250. It had just decreased to one in 250. So that's quite a spike. And so one of the more interesting things I think for me is that more boys are diagnosed than girls. Do we understand why? We're starting to begin to understand why. Um, you know, I do believe that there is a higher prevalence of, of boys being diagnosed, and that will remain the case. But they have just started to adjust the um, criteria for diagnosing girls. So up until now, the diagnosis of autism has really been designed around how boys manifest the characteristics. And so girls weren't getting the diagnosis because they were presenting the characteristics as girls manifest the characteristics. So they just, girls are girls and boys are boys, right? And just Mm -hmm. the world. And the same thing applies when you're dealing with a diagnosis. So a girl with autism looks very different than a boy with autism a lot of times. So let's talk about some of the warning signs for parents listening this morning. And if they have a child and they may suspect that their child may have autism. What are some of those early warning signs that parents can look for? You know, something that um, we have seen in the past couple of years um, is an increase in research, actually being able to identify infants as young as six months old. So wow. um, this is relatively a new area, but it all comes down to eye tracking. So there's research out there that is saying, you know, individuals with autism don't, um, their eyes don't track in the same way that a, a developmental, like a typically developing kid tracks. So um, it's going to be eye contact. Um, it's going to be something that we refer to as joint attention. So um, a shared interest in something. So if you were to look out the window and say, oh, look at that cow, you know, we would all look, but a, a young child with autism may not look. They may be preoccupied with with, with what they are interested in. Um, so repetitive routines, um, a lot of times the play will be restricted. So you're going to see a child that is, um, you know, sitting in front of a pile of toys, but only engaging when with one item instead of having imaginative play and using the car to roll down the ramp and they're crashing. Um, that child might just have the car turned over and rolling the wheels repetitively. Um, a lack of, you know, social interaction. So a child might not... Um, know, engage with other children their age. They may um, seek out adults because adults are, are, you know, 
predictable and comforting, whereas a child is unpredictable. Um, and then sometimes with it depends on the diagnosis, but a child will have um, delayed communication. So anything from nonverbal to um, very limited use of, of words. So there's really four areas that you're going to look at when diagnosing an individual in the autism spectrum. So communication, their social skills, their behavior, and how they react to sensory um, experiences. So communication can range from nonverbal to a child that has great language, um, but it might be overly formal. So um, with a child like that, they would refer to as a, a little professor. Um, someone who has a very enhanced vocabulary at a very young age. Um, and then socially, you have individuals that present as aloof, so they seem absolutely uninterested in interacting with their peers or just anyone. And then you have individuals that may um, interact, but it will be in a very restricted way, so they only want to talk to you about Thomas the Train, for example. And you try to get them to talk about anything else, and they're only talking about the subject that they're interested in. And then you have individuals, again, that are just very formal, and they might have you know, um, limitations to the, um, the diversity of their social interactions. Um, and then when it comes to behavior, you have individuals that might engage in hand flapping. They might be toe walking. Um, then you have individuals that might um, cling to certain items that are comfort items. Um, you see a lot of kids with iPads these days, so it's hard to hard to discern, really. Mm -hmm. And then you have individuals that um, might even engage in really difficult or maladaptive or aggressive behavior. So, um, and then the sensory, every kid reacts to the sensory pieces um, completely different. So you have kids that are overreactive to things and kids that are underreactive. But what I like to say is that you take those characteristics, right? You take um, communication and you put those different characteristics on a dice. You take the sensory piece and you put all those characteristics on a dice. You put the behavior pieces all on a dice and you put the um, social interaction all on a dice. You put it in a cup, you shake it up and you let it go. And that's one kid with autism because every single kid is completely different. You might have a kid who's nonverbal but very social. You might have a kid that's highly verbal but isn't social. Um, the main commonality is those four areas. And in case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Sunday Morning Magazine. I'm Rodney Lear. In the studio with me this morning is Amanda Tip Kemper. She is Autism Service Director with the Children's Home of Cincinnati. Also in the studio with us is Steve Wilson. He is with the Children's Home of Cincinnati as well. They're here this morning to talk about autism. Now let's talk about the diagnosis process. And I know this is something new for the Children's Home. I know that this is a new service that you guys offer but let's talk about that and the impact it has on parents, because I would imagine the diagnosis itself would be devastating for most parents. You know, I think it depends on the parent and where they are in the process. So I've I've worked with a lot of parents um, and typically when a family is seeking out a diagnosis, they've already identified that there's something different. Okay. Um, that there's something concerning or that there's something wrong. It just depends on the mindset. Um, and so they've already got that tickle and they're, they're trying to seek out an answer. Um, that does not mean that they don't still struggle when they receive that diagnosis. So um, it depends on where they get the diagnosis, but the process is they have to get typically a referral from their pediatrician 
Um, and that's a referral to get a diagnosis at Children's or at now the Children's Home. Um, and everybody has different processes. But what you want to do is you want to get a multi-factored evaluation. So you want to make sure that you have, you know, someone who's evaluating speech, someone who's evaluating, you know, um, intelligence, someone who's using um, – a screener that's been validated for individuals with autism. So you want more than one person looking at your child, ideally, so that you get those different perspectives and that there's some reliability when you get that ultimate diagnosis, that there's not just one person who's made that determination, but you have multiple people that have agreed upon it. That's the most powerful diagnosis that you can really get. Um, There are individuals that do um, diagnose people on the autism spectrum, and they use just a, you know, a single criterion. But ideally, you're going to find someone that does something called like an arena test or a multi-factor test. So um, it can take some time when you do it that way, though, because you're seeing multiple people. So a lot of times, a family might not get a diagnosis after getting that initial referral. It might take the shortest period of time, probably being three months all the way up to a year Mm -hmm. to get the full diagnosis. Um, and then from there, you just really hope that that family is connected with um, a professional that understands how to impart that information to them. Um, I am aware of many families who have been handed the diagnosis very coldly and said, well, there you go. This is what you're looking for. Good luck. You know, mm-hmm. and I've had families that have had a really supportive experience. So. I would encourage, you know, any medical professional that is handing a diagnosis, even for a family that understands that there's been warning signs and whatnot, a family still, when they receive the actual diagnosis, there is, you know, some mourning. There's mm-hmm. some shock. There might be, you know, they has, still have to wrap their heads around it. And it changes their vision of what their life is going to be like. It changes their vision for what their child's life is going to be like. And those are things that you have to really bear in mind when you're providing that family the ultimate diagnosis, I think. And again, in case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Sunday Morning Magazine. I'm Rodney Lear. Remember, more information about the show can be found on our Facebook page. Visit us at Sunday Morning Magazine with Rodney Lear. We'll have more information on autism. We'll have more information on our guests, Amanda Tipkemper and Steve Wilson. They're with the Children's Home of Cincinnati. Now, one of the hot button issues I understand in autism today is neurodiversity. Explain to us what that means and the controversy behind it. Well, you know, I I think that you're going to hear a lot more about this um, in the coming years. And neurodiversity is basically saying that instead of us saying that a person with autism or a person with a, a disability, instead of calling it a disability, we're really starting to look at it as a different ability, as a different way of viewing the world and approaching the world and a different um, set of skills and strengths that that individual has to offer the world instead of saying, you don't do this my way, right? And therefore, it's the wrong way. Us approaching an individual and saying, it looks like you do that differently than I do. What do I have to gain from seeing how you do it? So that is one of the pieces. There's a lot of um, information out there about neurodiversity. And it's basically just saying that, you know, um, an individual, let's just stick to autism, right? An individual with autism is not um, wrong, and they're not um, a mistake, right? They're not a disability or a disorder, but a um, 
basically an intentional part of human evolution and that we can credit so many of um, our inventions and our discoveries to individuals that have this different way of viewing and different way of approaching the world. Um, and I know that you you might be aware, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's a lot of people that we look at historically that were like, ooh, they probably had autism. So for example, I mean, I think everyone knows Albert Einstein, right? So that's mm-hmm. an individual that a lot of people are like, he probably had autism. They say um, Tesla, Nicholas Tesla also probably had autism. Thomas Edison has been um, – We've, we've wondered about him. Amadeus Mozart, um, Amadeus Wolfgang Mozart is another one that people have said he probably is autism. So you really start looking back and you're like, well, nobody looks back at those individuals as, you know, anomalies and, you know, individuals that, you know, needed support and special education and whatnot. You know, they somehow managed to um, create things that we still rely on today. So... So um, is it more like just you're labeling people? Is that is that what it gets down to? Yeah, I think that, you know, neurodiversity has really come about with the rise of also self-advocates. So mm-hmm. individuals with autism that are able to articulate and express themselves and really speak for, you know, a group of individuals. So, you know, there's a whole entire um, – you know, there's a whole entire line of thinking with different advocacy groups that say nothing about us without us, right? And individuals with autism are starting to say the same thing. Nothing about us without us. You know, we're able to tell you how we feel. We're able to tell you what we want. And we should be the ones that are forging this path, not other people that don't have autism. So I think neurodiversity comes also from those self-advocates saying that we got this. Okay. All right. There you go. There you go. So I know one of your one of the things that you do a lot of work with, you work with a lot of teens and young adults and their transition into, you know, being a teenager, because I would imagine being a teenager. Well, I have teenager now, so I know that (laughs) it can be difficult. (laughs) But then you add on this this piece with the autism piece. So. I can imagine that being all that more complicated. So let's talk about how you work with teens and some of the issues that teens with autism, some of the issues that they face. Sure. And I, you know, you said you have a child, you have kids that are teens. Yeah, I have have a teenager. We all have teenagers sitting Mm -hmm. in this room. So, you know, when you think about an individual who is going through adolescence, I think we have all experienced that push and pull of independence and also dependence, right? Mm -hmm. So my daughter would love for me to let her be as independent as she likes, but she still wants me to make her breakfast and lunch and she wants me to do her laundry. Right, right, right. right. And so you're dealing with the same thing with an individual with autism, but you're also dealing with a history of a life in which this a parent typically has been serving as an advocate and a parent has really been forging the path for this child. So um, one of the things that we do in our program is we really try to support not just the individual, you know, the student that we're serving, but the, the whole entire family. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to empower the family and make sure that they feel um, like they have the tools and resources to be able to step back and allow that teenager to explore that independence. Because it's something that, you know, is important to all of us. And just because you have autism. And that has to be difficult because I, even, you know, you <laughs> mm-hmm. have your other your other teens, right? You know, high functioning teenagers that 
I think that's difficult. Mm-hmm. And then you add on the fact that, you know, they have autism. So I think that's even difficult for any parent, probably. It absolutely is. And, you know, you have to work with every family um, around their specific comfort levels. But for us, like the first step, and this seems simple, and, you know, I've worked on this with my daughter as well, is just really owning that personal information. So, for example, when a family first comes into us um, to even inquire about our services, we'll sit down and do an intake. And, you know, we have kids that, that range from nonverbal to you haven't stopped talking for the last 15 minutes. So we have a a pretty broad range of kids that we work with. But when we're in that intake interview, I ask the families to not answer the questions and allow the child to answer the questions. Because for me, that's that baseline. So, you know, what's your name? What's your birth date? What's your address? What's a good number to reach you? Um, What's your medical diagnosis? If a kid doesn't know their medical diagnosis, that's a problem in a high school. Because at some point, I mean, how many times has a doctor asked you for your medical history? Do you call your mom? Right. Do you bring your mom with you to the doctor's appointment? And that's what I try to share with the family is that it's not only empowering to the individual that we're serving, but it's also freeing to the family. You know, they're not going to have to be so tied to this child. And I will tell families on a regular basis that, you know, if you're a young adult and you're still relying on your parent to get you everywhere, there starts to be a rub. There starts to be some um, resentment of that dependence. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to make sure that our students have as much information as possible and that they become self-advocates so that they can have the life that they want to have. One of the things that's also difficult, I think, a lot of times is when you're sitting at a table and we're talking about what do you want to be for the rest of your life with this kid, right? And a family has an idea and a kid has a very different idea. And then just having to to marry those, to having to help. And that's one of our roles is helping to bridge the parent's idea with the, with the individual's idea. Um, and also making sure that we're doing lots of assessments to say, hey, you said that you wanted to go into, you know, animal care and you want to be a vet. But can you handle blood? Can you handle animal poop? Can you handle death? Because those are the things that go with being a vet. Mm-hmm. Oh, you don't like those things. So maybe you need to go into grooming or maybe you need to go into, you know, animal, you know, care, some some other form um, that's going to get you there. So it's really just about having those conversations on a regular basis. And again, in case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Sunday Morning Magazine. I'm Rodney Lear. This morning, right now, we're talking about autism. For more information on autism or more information on the show or our guests, all you have to do is go to our Facebook page, Sunday Morning Magazine with Rodney Lear. In the studio with me, we're talking to Amanda. We're also going to be speaking to Steve in a second here. They're with the Children's Home of Cincinnati. And Amanda is talking again about autism. So let's talk about this now. We talked about teenagers, but let's take that a little further. They are now young adults um what is the goal is the goal for them for some children to be become independent i'm sure that's the goal for some it may not be for all so how do you work with young people there and families there so i there's a quote that says even if you you know shoot for the moon because even if you miss you land in the stars right Mm -hmm. so what my goal for every single child that comes to our program is independence To be as independent as possible, even if that means some level of assistance. But I think our goal should be independence because, I mean, it is for us. 
So mm-hmm. why shouldn't it be for anyone else? And the thing about it is, is that if your goal isn't independence, then what is driving the advocacy efforts in terms of, you know, funding and legislative efforts to make sure that those services are out there if we don't have that goal? So I think we have to have that goal is that every single individual out there should have the opportunity to live as independently as they want. Some people want to live with their parents. I kind of want to live with my parents. Mm-hmm. But I, that's after having the opportunity of living independently. Now that I live independently, I want to move back in with my parents. But at least I got to make that choice, right? And I want the individuals that we serve to have the same opportunity to make the choice based on experience, based on information, not just being left with the options that are available. So um, we do a lot of things to get our kids ready for that. You know, we're preparing them for the rest of their life. Um, No pressure. And we have a little bit of time to do it. And the staff that I work with um, are all under the same philosophy of it's crunch time. Like we have a couple years to make a big impact. And we have some really passionate people doing it. So we have our school program, which is a charter non-public. We provide credit. We can graduate kids. We'll have 14 graduates this year. So um, if you want to come see me cry for hours, (laughs) come on out. Um, And then we have a transition program. And that transition program is for 18 to 21-year-olds. That's really focused on life readiness. So um, employment, some of our kids want to go to college. Some of our kids are going straight into work. Um, we'll have a mock apartment, so we're actually finishing the space, and I'll let Steve talk about that. Um, we'll have a fully functional mock apartment that we can work on as adaptive daily living skills. Um, you know, we take the kids to, um, you know, um, fitness centers. We work on healthy living styles, healthy eating. Um, you know, we talk to them about being safe with social media, safe with technology, we teach them financial literacy. I mean, we we cover all the bases. We really, really do. Um Talk about healthy relationships and how to be safe in those as well. So we're trying to arm our, our students with as many resources as possible. And they also know that we have an open door policy and they can come back anytime if they need support. We just became approved to be a provider of a state service called Opportunities for Ohioans with Disabilities. We'll be a service provider. And one of the most exciting things that I was able to do last year was tell our families that you know, as a service provider for OOD, we'll be able to provide support to your child for the rest of their life, not just as a child, not just as a student, but they can graduate, they can get a job, and at 35, they lose that job, and they'll be able to come back to us. And somebody that they know and trust Mm -hmm. can get them back on their feet again. So I think the families found that very comforting. I find it comforting. Mm -hmm. So, All right. So, Steve, tell us about this mock apartment and what you guys are doing at the children's home um, there, and what's the goal there and what that looks like. Uh, Well, that's just one part of a huge phase two expansion project that we just broke ground on last week. Uh, Imagine a very pristine, state-of-the-art, 80,000-square-foot facility uh, dedicated to nothing but bettering the lives of students on the spectrum, and that building also houses our preschool program. Uh, The mock apartment that Amanda mentioned is just one example of really – giving these kids a chance to live independent and dignified lives, which is something that we all want. That's what everyone wants. And uh, one thing she mentioned uh, that goes along with, you know, the independence and the other goals we have for these students, they live, eat, and breathe that program each and every day. Um, If you walk into Amanda's building for a tour, let's say, yes, one of her staff members are there, but those students on the spectrum deliver that tour, and they answer your questions. And from day one, those students are empowered to live independent lives. 
uh, through their academics, but also through the daily life skills they're being taught. It's I'm fond of saying it's so much more than a school. We're really teaching men and women, uh, young men and women on the spectrum, how to live. It's extremely unique in program. Uh, whenever personally I need to be inspired, uh, Amanda's campus is about a mile down from our main campus, but that's the building I go to. It's an amazing place to see. So, Amanda, tell us more about the mock apartment. So are students able to stay in this apartment or how does that work? Amanda, How help me out. Well, how do you guys use this? Is it just is it an overnight thing or is it doing the school um, hey, don't give anybody any ideas. We're okay, not doing okay. overnight. Soon. All right, all right. So tell me about this. Cause that, that's so, um, you know, we have pieces of the mock apartment now that we've utilized for the past several years. But what we are designing is a fully functional, fully efficient mock apartment um, that is going to have, you know, a kitchenette. It's going to have, you know, the dining, living area, a bedroom. Um, and there actually is going to be observation glass. So nobody's going to be staying there. Um, but the observation glass is so that we can give an individual – one of our students or transition students, we can give them a list of activities that they need to complete and we can leave and go to that window and see how independent. Because a lot of times the individuals that we serve can become prompt dependent. So they'll be looking at us trying to get some sort of a, you know, a prompt, a hint, yeah, yeah, a, yeah, hint yeah. a prompt, what they're supposed to be doing. And our faces and our bodies give it away, whether we want it to or not, a lot of times it will. So being able to leave that room, be able to take that on their growing independence. And also, again, they're going to feel more empowered because there isn't somebody watching, you know. So the mock apartment will just be the piece where we're really working on adapted daily living skills. So we're making sure that, you know, kids are turning off the stove after they use it, you know, that they, um, you know, make their bed correctly without someone giving them step-by-step instructions you know if we tell them that they need to vacuum the floor that they're doing you know they're not just like vacuuming a couple rows and then sitting down and playing on their phone you know so right because we don't do that i was about to say that sounds like my life already (laughs) this sounds like i'm talking to my teenage everything that you mentioned is like i'm going through that right now you can drop them off the phone down You could drop them off and yeah. work on it. Yeah. So, but you know, to the point with the phone, I mean, you know, a lot of schools will say that students can't have their phones and they'll make them put them away, but we don't have that. We have, you know, we have a policy. We have a cell phone policy that if you break the rules, we will restrict your access. But we're trying to teach our kids how to be responsible citizens and mm-hmm. safe citizens. So, in order for us to work on appropriate cell phone usage, they have to have them on them. So, um, and I would say that I will tell you something I will over the years and I've worked with kids with autism for a long, long time and I've taught social skills for a long, long time and I have a teenage daughter and I think that our kids at this point almost have better social skills a lot of times because they aren't on their like they're introducing themselves and mm-hmm. bringing up things to talk about right. and they're engaging, you know, they're not like constantly checking their phone while they're having a conversation with you. It's amazing when we go out to um, we go on field trips constantly. So we've gone to the art museum and the lady who gave us a tour at the art museum sent an email and said, you had the most polite and engaging group of individuals. They were so interested and I haven't had such a engaged group of teenagers in a long time. And I was like, that's right. <laughs> it's <laughs> that's pretty awesome. fantastic. All right. Well, we're running out of time this morning. Finally, this morning, what's the most important message as we talk about young people on the spectrum? What is it that you want us all to know for those people that may not be in this community per se? What is it that you want them to know about the students that you work with, the young people that you work with? 
One of my messages that I share on a regular basis is assume competence, even with individuals that are completely nonverbal, because I've interacted with quite a few nonverbal individuals on the autism spectrum that have a lot more going on than even I have going on. So mm. I, I think that you would make a great mistake in thinking that because a person can't talk, they can't understand you and they don't have something to share with the world as well. Um, and as well as, you know, an individual that might, you know, be misunderstanding you or is quirky or is presenting as difficult. A lot of times, you know, a kid that um, is on the autism spectrum that used to be known as Asperger's is going to interact with the world a little bit differently. So just don't jump to conclusions and decide that this is a difficult person. Um, just take your time and really get to know that person and see what they have to offer. So with neurodiversity, with an individual with autism, you know, presume confidence, look for the strengths and what people have to give instead of what their difficulties or what their challenges are, because it's just a much more positive outlook and you're going to have a better interaction with anyone, even if they're not on the autism spectrum. Right. All right. Steve, I think it's important for your listeners to know that our enrollment capacity for our autism services program is expanding. Uh, we conducted a study with the University of Cincinnati not long ago and found that there is a huge population in the greater Cincinnati area that is underserved, that are on the spectrum. Uh, the best thing you can do if you are a parent with a child on the spectrum or if you're a parent and you suspect your child might be on the spectrum or if you know someone who is, uh, give our specialists a call, visit our website, and let us help you. Uh, this is an amazing program. They do amazing things every day. All right. And if our listeners, if they would like to reach out to you guys about the program, Steve, what number should they call or how should they reach out to you? Maybe through social media. How should they reach out to you? Uh, they can follow us on all of our social channels. Uh, we're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Uh, of course, there's our website, thechildrenshomecinti.org. Uh, or if you just Google Autism Services uh, Children's Home of Cincinnati, uh, all of the numbers will pop up there. Uh, regardless, you can also call our switchboard, uh, which is also on our website. We will find the right person to help you. We will never, ever leave you behind. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. I really do appreciate it. Thank, Thank you for you. the opportunity. We've been speaking to Amanda Tipkemper and Stephen Wilson with the Children's Home of Cincinnati. Again, for more information on the show, you can like us on our Facebook page, Sunday Morning Magazine with Rodney Lear on Facebook. Head there now and like us there now. We'll be back with more Sunday Morning Magazine right after this. Stay with us. More to come. Peloton, let's go. This holiday, with the right music, and the right motivation from world-class instructors. We're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes, from running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Peloton, motivation that moves you.